The following sermon by Charles Spurgeon is called Finding Peace in Life's Storms. Master, do you not care that we perish? Mark 4, verse 38. The day had been a very illustrious one. Our Lord had remarkably displayed his teaching and healing powers. Great crowds had been attracted, and he had both delivered to them most precious parables and wrought among them most marvelous cures. Grand as the day was, it could not come to a close without a storm. After the same manner you will find it in the history of the Church of God, it intermingled with great successes will be great afflictions. Pentecost is followed by persecution. Peter's sermon by Peter's imprisonment. Though today a church may flourish abundantly, in a very short time it may be visited with stern adversities. It may be tried nonetheless, but all the more because God is in its midst. In his blessing it, when our Lord took ship, the weather appears to have been very fair. In many little boats which scarce would have tempted the sea had its surface been ruffled, put upon the lake under the convoy of the great teacher's vessel. His was the admiral's flagship, and they were the happy fleet. They made a gay flotilla, sailing softly like seabirds when the ocean is in a gentle mood. All hearts were happy. All spirits were serene. And the sleep of the master was but a type of the general peace. Nature reposed. The lake was at a molten looking glass. Everything was quiet, and yet, all of a sudden, as is accustomed with deep-lying inland seas, a storm fin rushed from his haunt among the mountains, sweeping everything before it. The little vessel was put hard to it. She was well-nigh filled with water and ready to sink through the force of the driving hurricane. Thus must our loveliest calms be succeeded by overwhelming storms, a Christian man, is seldom long at ease. Our life, like April weather, is made up of sunshine and showers. We should suspect some danger nigh, when we perceive too much delight. Nothing beneath the moon can be depended on. All things are invariably variable. Boast not yourself at tomorrow, saith the wise man. And he might have added, Boast not yourself today, for you know not how the evening may close. However brightly, the morning may have opened. Let us learn this lesson at the outset. Let us not reckon upon the continuance of present ease, nor fix our happiness upon the fickle weather of this world. But let us be ready for changes, so that come when they may, we shall not be afraid of evil tidings, our heart being fixed, trusting in the Lord. It would seem that when the storm began, the disciples did not at first arouse the Master, they had some consideration for his extreme weariness, for he had spent a whole day in very severe toil, and his human strength was exhausted. They thought, perhaps, that the hurly-burly of the storm would wake him. How could he sleep amid the howling winds and roaring waves? They little knew how deeply calm his heart was, so that amid the tempest he could sleep right well, for the tempest came not near his soul. When at last they found that they were in great jeopardy, for their bark would surely sink, they began to judge their Lord and to think of him unbelievingly and unkindly. They thought they should perish, 
and he wondered how he could allow them to do so. And therefore they went to him crying, as Luke says, Master, Master, we perish. Or as Mark gives it, Master, do you not care that we perish? Many of them cried out. One said one thing and one another, but their general spirit was one of complaint of their Lord. They knew he loved them, and yet had thought him cruel. They trusted him, and yet had grievous doubts. They called him master, and yet they were in a sort of semi-rebellion against him. They owned his sway, but were ready to mutiny against him, because he did not exercise his power for their rescue. We shall take the text as a keynote of our subject, and first, we shall think upon the apparent indifference of the Lord to his people. But we shall note, secondly, that it only is apparent. Thirdly, that he has a real care for them at times when he seems indifferent. And fourthly, they shall see this to be the case by and by. First, then, we, as well as the disciples on the Galilean lake, sometimes complain of the indifference of the Lord to us. But it is an apparent indifference. Sometimes a complaint takes this shape. God allows natural laws to proceed in their prescribed course, even when his own children will be crushed by them. There is a vessel out at sea. It is enveloped in dense fog. Prayers are offered up by godly men on board for the right guidance of the vessel, but if it continue to be steered as it is now, it will come upon a rock. And on a rock it does come, notwithstanding the prayers. Doesn't God care that a vessel should perish with people on board it, who are praying for direction and deliverance? At another time the rough winds are out, and the vessel flies before them. She will soon sink. She cannot long live in the storm. Many supplications and entreaties are sent up to God, yet the tempest does not abate one jot of its fury. The laws of nature at such times appear to be as grim and heartless as if they were managed by the prince of the power of the air. His God is ordained, so does nature move. For as the floods do not stand right as in heap, neither do the waters refuse to drown. Whether it be martyr or murderer, the fire devours with equal fury and the sword falls with an equally deadly blow. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked. From this fact arises many a complaint, and we cry, Do you not care that we perish? Our dear one, whom Jesus loves, is sick. Day and night we plead for his recovery. But the fever takes its course, or the broken limb requires its full time to heal. God does not alter the physical laws of the body for the convenience of his chosen. To them, poison is poison, and disease is disease. Full often the Lord permits those whom we love to suffer long, and he does not seem to pay attention to our prayers and entreaties. Nay, rather the case grows worse and worse. We are very apt, when we are under a trying dispensation, to judge the laws of nature to be very pitiless ordinances without bowels of mercy. And we say, Master, do you not care that we perish? It is well to remember, however, what we may all too easily forget, that the present complaint is based upon an error. For the laws of nature do nothing whatever 
and are no more to be blamed than the commandments on the church wall. There is no such power as the law of nature acting by itself. All power lies in God, and the law of nature is neither more nor less than a description of the way in which the Lord usually works. The vessel, badly steered, strikes upon the rock, because usually God causes ships to obey their helms and rocks to retain their hardness. And a man who dies of sickness does not die because of some ungovernable force in nature, but because God continues to give energy to destructive agencies. The laws of nature are but a powerless letter. God works all things. But has he himself said, I create the light, and I create darkness. Not a seed dwells beneath the soil. Not a bud bursts into beauty, nor an ear of corn ripens for the harvest without God. He is in the dew and in the sunshine, the light and the warmth, which nourish and perfect the plant. Happy is he who in all things beholds a present deity. I see laws of nature, and I know that God acts according to them. But I see best a God who is behind the law. Law. What force has that? It is God working by the law. He does it all. His truth sets manner in another light. For if the Lord brings a trial upon us, we open not our mouth, but yield to his will. His ways of action must be right. And if they cause us grief, we nevertheless feel that he is not afflicting us willingly, or grieving us without design. When we perceive his hand, we kiss a rod. Instead of saying, Master, do you not care that we perish? We cry out in resignation, it is the Lord, let him do what seems him good. Sometimes our lament assumes another shape. We view the troubles which come upon us as a result of the stern decrees of fate, and shudder because it seems to our unbelief that God has made small account of us and arranged affairs with slight reference to the weakness, sorrow, and infirmity of his people. Brethren, do most of us now present belief in predestination, and are persuaded that the Lord works everything according to the counsel of his will? We believe that all things, great and small, are fixed in the eternal purpose, and will surely be as they are ordained. This doctrine becomes a lurking place of a temptation. We gaze upon the ponderous wheels of predestination and their awful revolutions in fear that they will grind us to powder. In the forebodings of our trouble, we fear that we may be entangled in the terrible machinery, and that, as it will not pause for our crying, it will rend us to pieces. Like the prophet, only with far greater dread we cry, Oh, will, but ought but we ought to reflect that there is no such thing as blind fate. Predestination is a far different thing. Fate is a blind man who rushes madly on because he must. Predestination is full of ice and proceeds in one line, because it is the best path which could be taken. Fate is a tyrant declaring that such a thing shall be because he wills it. Predestination is a father ordering all things for the good of his household. God has his purpose and his way, and his purposes are both for his own glory and for the good of his people. 
Who among us would wish a Lord to turn aside from his holy and gracious designs? He has ordained the best. Would we have him vary? He has determined all things wisely. Would we have him determine otherwise? That which happens to us occurs because in the judgment of infinite wisdom and goodness it is on the whole best. That it should be so. Would we wish the Lord to arrange otherwise? Will you tempt the Holy One of Israel? Will you ask him to do other than that which is wise and just and good and holy? And for his own glory, instead of crying out against destiny, let us cheerfully accept it, because the Lord is in it. Do not say, Care thou not that we perish, but believe that instead of perishing, your complete salvation will be promoted by all the events of providence. It may be that we are in a different state of heart and are worrying ourselves today because it seems to us that affliction is sent upon men altogether irrespective of their character, and the godly were made to suffer even more than the wicked. If you read the Apostle's question with an emphasis, do you care not? Do we perish? It will show you my meaning. Did it as much as say, we are your apostles. We love you. We spend our lives for you. Care you not that we perish? We could understand that the vessel which carries a load of publicans and sinners should go to the bottom. But you care not that we perish? Sometimes under trouble we have wondered why we are so afflicted. For we have felt that the Lord has kept us from known sin, and has led us in the way of holiness, and therefore we have seen no special cause for his scourging. Our cry has been, Show me, therefore, why do you contend with me? And if any have been cruel enough, like Job's comforters, to say that we were suffering because of special sin, we have held fast our integrity, declared that we were not wicked in the sense in which they accused us. Now, let us look one minute at this, and we shall discover that God does send affliction according to character. After all, but then after the rule which flesh and blood would prescribe, it is not written, as many as I hate, I chasten. Far from it. He permits the wicked to spring as the grass and allows them to flourish like a green prey tree, his oxen that are well fed, that they may be prepared for the slaughter. Dear pampered, but their end is near. But it is written, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The favorites of heaven are inheritors of the rod. It is not said, the branches which bring forth no fruit shall be pruned. No, they shall be utterly taken away in due season and cast into the fire. But it is written, every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. And therefore, when affliction comes upon our beloved relative who has lived the most exemplary life, or when a painful death happens to an unusually gracious man, we must not judge the Lord unkindly, as though he were unjust, but see his loving hand in it all, and bless him that he deals with our beloved ones as he is wont to deal with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not chasten? He scourges every son whom he receives. The gold is put into the furnace, because it is gold. It would have been of no use to put mere stones and rubbish there. The corn is threshed, because it is corn. 
Had it been weeds, it would have been untouched by the flail. The great owner of Heaven's Jewel thinks it's worth his while to use a more elaborate and sharp cutting machine upon the most valuable stones. A diamond of the first water is sure to undergo more cutting than an inferior one, because the king desires that it may have many facets, which may throughout eternity with greater splendor reflect the light of the glory of his name. Mayhap, dear brethren, we have thought that Jesus did not care for us because he has not wrought a miracle for our deliverance and has not interposed any remarkable way to help us. You are at this time in such sore distress that you would fain cry, Oh, that he would rend the heavens and descend for my deliverance. But he has not rent the heavens. You have read in biographies of holy men the details of very extraordinary providence. But no extraordinary providence has come to your rescue. You are getting gradually poor and poor, or you are becoming more and more afflicted in body. And you had hoped that God would have taken some extraordinary method with you. But he has done nothing of the sort. My dear brother, do you know that sometimes God works a greater wonder when he sustains his people in trouble than he would do if he brought them out of it? For him to let the bush burn on and yet not to be consumed is a grander thing than for him to quench the flame. And so save the bush. God is being glorified in your troubles. And if you realize this, you will be ready to say, Lord, keep on the loads, if it be for your glory. Give me but strength equal to my day, and then pile on the burdens. I shall not be crushed beneath them but I shall be made to illustrate your power. My weakness shall glorify your might. Possibly the hard suspicion that Jesus does not care for you takes another form. I do not ask the Lord to work a miracle, but I do ask him to cheer my heart. I want him to apply the promises to my soul. I want his spirit to visit me, as I know he does some good people, so that my pain may be forgotten in the delight of the Lord's presence. I want to feel such a full assurance of the Savior's presence that the present trial shall, as it were, be swallowed up in a far more exceeding weight of joy. But alas, the Lord hides his face from me, and this makes my trial all the heavier. Beloved, can you not believe in a silent God? Do you always want tokens from God? Must you be petted like a spoiled child? It's your God of such a character that you must needs mistrust him if his face be veiled. Can you trust him no further than you can see him? Besides, you are losing what you have while pining for what you have not. You say, I lack promises. And I ask you, what more can he say than to you he has said? You who, to Jesus for refuge, have fled. You say you need a token for good. What greater tokens do you require then? He has already given you in your past experience, or that he has presented to you in the flowing wounds of a dying Savior. The tokens for good which Jesus gave on the cross ought to be enough, and to spare. Still, one says, if he does not come to me and break the darkness with some light from his presence, I wish he would mitigate the pain I bear. 
If he will not take it away altogether, yet surely he will not let me utterly perish through its severity. Ah, perish, dearest a point. And I pray you observe the distinction. That he may try us, we can understand. But that he should let us perish, we cannot comprehend. No, my dear brother, you are not asked to understand it, for you have not perished yet. Bad as your case is, it might be worse. You are brought very low, but you might be lower. You might be in the dungeons of hell. What a mercy it is that you never can sink lower than the grave. You shall never make your bed in hell. Thank God for that. When you come to the lowest, God interposes. The tide turns when you reach a full point of ebb and the darkest part of the night is that which preludes the rising of the sun. Be of good courage. You have not perished yet. And let this be a wonder to you, Lord. And am I yet alive? Not in torment. Not in hell. Why should a living man complain? Should he not still have hope? And expect that in his extremity God will appear for him. Thus. We have mentioned various forms in which a temptation to charge the Lord foolishly presents itself to the soul. But now, secondly, the indifference of God to his people at any time must be apparent. It cannot be real. Meditate a little. Consider the character of the trying God of whom we are speaking. The Father. Can he be unkind? His mercy endures forever. His name. His essence is love. It is said of him that he delights in mercy. And we know that he is an unchangeable God, and therefore we are not consumed. Can you, O oh, heir of heaven, believe that he is indifferent to you, his child? You, being evil, are careful for your children. How much more shall your father who is in heaven pity his own? Can you stand by and see your child tortured with pain and not wish to relieve him? Have you not sometimes felt, O oh mothers, that you would take your children's pangs upon yourselves right joyfully, if you could set your dear ones free? And have you poor fallen creatures, such bowels of compassion? And has your heavenly Father none? Oh, do not judge him so. Do not say to him, care you not? we perish. Think of the second person of the blessed trinity in unity, Jesus, the Son of God, your brother as well as God's dear Son. Can he forget his people? Has he not taken upon himself your nature? Was he not tempted in all points like as you are? Has he not graven your name upon the palms of his hand, and written the dear memorials of his love on his side nearest to his heart? And you look into the face of the crucified and believe that he is indifferent to you. Oh, there was a time in the love of your espousals when his left hand was under your head and his right hand did embrace you, when you would not have thought so hardly of him, when he has kissed you with the kisses of his mouth and you have known his love to be better than wine. You could not have said such a barbarous thing concerning your well-beloved. No, it cannot be that Jesus should ever be indifferent to his people's woes. In the Spirit, the dear and ever-blessed Holy Spirit who dwells in us, can he be without pity? 
he condescends to dwell in us, and to take upon himself the peculiar office of the comforter. And this is matchless condescension. Thinketh thou that he is a comforter, and yet does not sympathize. A comforter without sympathy would be a strange being indeed. He would be a mocker of human woes, but he is full of tender pity. Think of the love of the Spirit, and never for a moment suspect that he is careless as to whether you shall perish or not. To trying God is love. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. He cannot be indifferent to the condition of his own. Consider next, beloved, the ancient deeds of divine love, of which the scriptures speak expressly, and you will see that the Lord cannot be careless as to your welfare. Know ye not that the eternal Jehovah loved you ever the earth was? Have you forgotten that the mountains with their hoary heads are but newborn babes compared with his love to you? He chose you. He might have passed you by, but he chose you to be his own. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saith the prophet, saying, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you, and has he loved you these myriads of ages to be indifferent to your groans now? And can it be? If he had meant to cast you away, he would have done so long ago. If he needed reasons for rejecting you, he had reasons from all eternity, for he knew what you would be. No sin in you has been a surprise to him. He foresaw the hardness of your heart and the waywardness of your disposition. And if he could now reject, he would never have chosen you. He would never have taken you to himself at all. Oh, then, let eternal love forbid you to dream that he can ever be careless as to whether you perish or not. Next, I pray you think of what he has done for you. I will only put it in brief. Do you think that Christ came from heaven to earth to save you? And now... Is indifferent about you. Do you think that he lived here thirty years of toil and weariness for your redemption and will now cast you away? And do you believe that he went up to the cross for you, having endured Gethsemane's terrible garden and its bloody sweat for you, and yet has no concern about you? Do you think he bore all the wrath of God on your behalf and now thinks your salvation such a trifling thing, that he cares not whether you perish or not. You believe that he has slept in the grave for you, and rose again for you, and is gone within the veil for you, and pleads before God for you, and is, after all, a hypocrite, and has no real love to you, man. But what Christ has done does not convince you what can. Many waters could not quench his love, neither could the floods drown it. Will you not confide in him for the present and the future, after what he has done for you? Consider yet again, what has he wrought upon you personally, and what have you known and felt within yourself? Years ago you were his enemy, and yet he saved you, and made you his friend. Do you remember when in the agony of your soul you cried out to him from the lowest pit and he came to your rescue? Will he leave you now? 
Remember how our poet makes a plea out of his past history and urges it with God. You must do the same. Once a sinner near despair, sought your mercy seat by prayer. Mercy heard and set him free. Lord, that mercy came to me. Many days have passed since then. Many changes I have seen, yet have been upheld till now. Who could hold me up but thou? You have helped in every need. Disimpotence me to plead. After so much goodness past, will you let me sink at last? There is a point. If God had not done so much for us already, we might question his intentions concerning us. But after the goodness and the mercy he has manifested, surely he will go through with it and perfect a work which he has begun. He has spent too much upon his work to relinquish it now. Recollect, too, beloved, and this is a sweet refreshment to the Spirit. Recollect a relationship which exists between you and your God. Fatherhood and sonship are full of comfort. Can the Lord be an untender father? Would the Lord cast away his own children? Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. Remember also that between you and Christ, O believer, there is a relationship of husband and of spouse. I am married unto thee, saith the Lord. And the prophet tells us that the Lord, the God of Israel, saith, He hates putting away. Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, he says, as if he defied any to prove that he'd ever put away his beloved. I will betroth thee to me forever. It's a language of our immutable God. The Lord has not cast away his people whom he did foreknow. Why then mistrust him? Oh, by the fond relationship which exists between our hearts and God, let us not suspect him of indifference. Remember also the divine promises. Will he be a liar? And let us perish. Remember his oath. It is base profanity to think that he can ever forgo his oath. Remember the solemn seal of the blood of reconciliation. How can the Lord treat the blood of Jesus with indifference? or renounce a covenant which has been made sure and ratified by the death of his own son. Allow a believer to perish, or be indifferent to whether his redeemed be saved or not. Impossible. It cannot be. For hence, horrible thought, that the storm rage as it may, and let Christ sleep as he may, he must feel for his people his indifference is but imaginary.